Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you watch it on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production, and our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about talking, speaking, speaking at events. Um, so, um, uh, so whether you're, how do you book contract follow up with speaking events and how do you get into that circuit? So we'll talk a little bit about that in the second hour. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into the first hour. Uh, Jason, what do we have? Mike Edwards in Fenwick Island, Delaware writes in morning, everyone. I found it increasingly difficult on my Mac Silicon computers to find files, especially on external drives using spotlight. What other drives or what other software does the panel recommend? Or am I stuck on Fenwick Island with this one? Jason. Okay. So uh, you can rebuild Spotlight on any drive with a terminal. It is uh, MD space util uh, space hyphen E and then the volume name specifically. And that will rebuild. Keep in mind, it's going to take a little while. So you, you absolutely need to let it rebuild in its entirety. After that, I don't think you're going to have an issue, but um, Fenwick, I think, has an excellent um, alternative if you'd want it. Let's travel to Fenwick Island. Fenwick. You had no idea the reach I had, did you? So, uh, Mike, I'm going to tell you, I search for files all the time, M1, Intel, whatever. It all works fine. But if you're on the island, um, on Coastal Highway, there's a great little pub. Tell them my name. You're good. <clears throat> You'll get a free drink out of it. Enjoy your stay. Fenwick likes to call it an island, but it's really a peninsula. <clears throat> Next question. It's still Fenwick, dude. <laughs> Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Phoenix, Arizona writes in, in the panel's opinion, who has the best video switching of the different NFL television presenters? Go, Jeffrey. First of all, I want to go to Fenwick Island and look at the Misfit Toys. Uh, for me, I'm a fan of Fox. Uh, I think that they do a great job of swish, switching uh, on, on the game. And it's really all dependent on how they can switch. I mean, going into a different studio or stadium, and I, I know that they, they've already got all that mapped out, where they're going to put the cameras, things like that. Had a great discussion with somebody uh, yesterday because at the Packer game, the Sky... Skycam, I think that's what it's called, the, the overhead camera, was used in the first half, but it wasn't used in the second half. And, the, and he, was, he was noting, he was actually at the game, that it was, a, it was a big distraction. And I'm thinking to myself, how do you, how do you keep, and I know the camera, the cameras can't get away from that, cam, that uh, Skycam. It's got to stay in, in the shot until it's not in the shot. So there's a lot of factors that go from stadium to stadium. But my biggest thing with the shots with uh, uh, Fox versus CBS is CBS's cameras always looked just a little washed out, in my opinion. And that's, that's, the, that's the one reason that and the fact that, you know, I'm in the wrong market for uh, those uh, games that are played on CBS most of the time. I actually, at, at a Green Bay game, sat next to the folks who ran the Skycam, and it's kind of an amazing thing to watch them do their thing, because the one person's managing the pan tilt zoom head, and the other one's managing the position of the, and the two of them have to do everything, you know, the, in, it's like a dance between the two of them, and those operators you know, travel together, because they really have to know each other to know exactly how to how to make all of those things work. It's it's really kind of an amazing um, setup. You know, I think that uh, it's, it's a little unfair to say this because it really has to do with money. Like who has the most money, has the best event, you know, switching and so on and so forth and the best graphics, best audio. I know there's another one on audio, but they're all, they all kind of live into the same, uh, um, in the same world there. I, I think that um, Thursday Night Football is probably the best run 
game coverage right now. Sunday night is the next best uh, coverage. And this, both of them have a lot more money. They're primetime games. <laughs> so, so they, so they, but they have really good teams and those, the, the graphics, the support, the, the playback, everything seems to be better. Uh, the, um, I think that the Sunday, the rest of the Sunday games are, you know, fall after that. The, then the college games, the primetime college games on Saturday. And then at the very bottom is Monday night football, which has just become, was, used to be the high point of most of these things. And is just the worst worst possible coverage of a game. It's like a penalty uh, against the teams. So um, it's just that they just spend no money on that at, at all, it feels like. <laughs> so the only one that I would, that I picked out yesterday that seemed particularly bad um, was uh, the, the, the Dolphin game. The Dolphin game was overexposed almost the entire game. And I just couldn't, I kept on going back to other games, like, is it my monitor? It's not, it wasn't. Like the, the Dolphins, uh, they're, they're, their shirts were over, were blown out the entire game. Like it was just a very odd, odd thing to be off on. <laughs> you know, like I, it felt like they just decided, well, it's their fault for having white um, shirts. <laughs> we're just going to blow them out because it just was blown out the entire game. Um, so anyway, it was just a really, I thought that was a really interesting uh, problem. Um, next question. Jeremy Horn in the San Francisco Bay Area used the QR code at askofficehours.com, and he wrote in, has anyone tried to plug a USB-C Avio, AVIO, into the iPhone 15? Nigel. Yes, I have, but I haven't got it to work yet, but I, I'm not finished doing it. When you plugged it in, it said it was a speaker. So it, it recognized it as a speaker, but I haven't, I haven't made it work yet, but I, I'm not finished the process. Is, the Avio, is that an Avio input or output? It's a two-way uh, USB right. one. So that, that's why it worked. I have to tell you, you have to take the phone out of the case because that doesn't work. But um, I'm still playing with it. I haven't made it work yet. But it did, why notice when I attached it, say it was the speaker. Any other news from the 15, from the world of 15s? You're one of the only ones in, the, in our little group that have them. Uh, no, but Paul asked a pretty good question uh, the other, on last week, maybe Saturday, about battery, and there was quite a good video on YouTube which says the battery life of the, the base 15 is, is killer. Um, let me think. Um, just about every USB-C cable that I've used, aside from the junky charging ones, and more importantly, the Thunderbolt 3 and Thunderbolt 4, both from OWC and from Pluggable, have, have worked in every instance that I've tried for high-speed transfer. Um, the last part, I guess, that I, I found to be really handy is that you can use either a dock or a direct USB-C plug to do straight-up gigabit Ethernet, which is wonderful. Chris? I was wondering, Nigel, it, you said you had to take it out of the case. Was, do you think that's the fault of the case design, the cable design on the Avio? Who's, who's to blame for that? That was the USB connection from the Avio would not fit in through the, the, the new woven case, which, by the way, I really dislike. It, it's, it has a very poor quality feel to it, having spent all this money on a phone. I don't want to feel a poor quality case, and that's how that feels. I don't want you to f have a f poor quality feeling with your case well, either. Well, thank you. It's I came here for the counseling, and I got it. It's Next woven question. out of old pop bottles, you know. No charge. Exactly. Next question. Lalek Lopez-Waterman in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, writes in, in the panel's opinion, who has the best sound mix of the different NFL station television presenters? 
So one thing I, I realized here is I don't know whether we were talking about the sound mix of the entire pre, of the entire game. And same thing with the last one. I looked back, I was like, did, did, did we mean just the presenters as far as their backgrounds or mixing them into the to the show? And I wasn't sure exactly. I, I, I would probably, as far as overall quality, I would, I think that the sound is is pretty much the same as the video of, of how I would stack up these shows. Um, the Thursday night football is probably the best and then Sunday night football and then and then it falls off pretty quickly after that just because there's, again, a lot more money and focus on those two games than, than the other games. Um, uh, you'd think that, again, you'd think that Monday night would be one of those, but it is definitely not. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, in the spirit of having nothing substantive to add to any of the questions this morning, I wanted to say that um, I watched a video about sound quality. I watched a whole video this morning about the sound quality in Tesla's and it's fascinating how much work they put into it. Anyway, football's good too, I guess. It's fascinating how much everyone put, like there's a lot of things about cars that you, you know, like there's, I was talking to someone that works on the handles at GM, like, and he's just like, and talking to someone about that, this is years ago, talking to someone about that, like, every, and I said, can you ever get it out of your head? He goes, no, every time I pull up a car handle, I, I feel, I, I can feel the it's linkages. It's like going to work. I can feel the linkages and I can feel whether it's smooth and I can tell where they cut corners and where they saw, you know, where they save money and everything else. <laughs> and I was like, I got to get that guy in a podcast sometime. It'd be really fun to have him ruin, ruin everybody's experience together. Years ago, I did a whole video about a guy, uh, a company that made the mounts that the seats are mounted to that are mounted into the cars. All yeah. they did was chair mounts, seat right. mounts. It's crazy. The the funny detail, and, and we'll move on back into a regular scheduled program about car about seat mounts, is that you know the car, uh, vans with seats um, are uh, vans with seats are taxed differently in the United States than than cargo vans, and so what they do is they attach the seats as van as vans and bring and import them into the United States and then they remove the seats and, and ship them back to, to back to Germany and do it again like it's like a, it's like a constant thing it was like a funny thing to see but as long as the seats are there when they arrive they don't get taxed the same way it's a funny thing go ahead Bill so in terms of mixing for television I think it must be a difficult task and here's why there's such now a range between full people who have five ones surround in their living rooms and want a full immersive experience with big bass and big crowd, and yet still have systems they can tune up to make sure that the center channel audio and the descriptions are clear. And you compare that to a lot of other people who are walk, uh, listening probably on portable radios, maybe even transistor radios. You know, somebody out in the field somewhere has only that. And trying to get a mix that works for both constituencies, I would imagine, is no small task. You don't have one target. You've got 40 targets that you're trying to, you know, what about this class of listener? How do we mix to make it good for them as well? That must be a tough, tough call. Go ahead, Nigel. I know nothing of this NFL stuff, but I did make the Avia work. So I just had to so fix Dante Control. What did you change? What did you change? I, I just had Dante Control it all set up. So I just patched it correctly and uh, it worked. Oh, so as soon as you patched the audio, it started, it showed up as both a speaker and a... Yeah. So I was able to play f music from my iPhone into my X32. I just need to fix the controller. But can you, if you have a mic on the Dante network, you can theoretically use that as the mic to talk into the... Phone. Oh, I didn't try that. Whether I could <laughs> use the, the phone mic 
yeah. as a might. Well, then maybe later. <laughs> you, want get the, you want to get the X32 later. into the phone is what yeah, he's saying. Yeah, that's... that's Because we're right now the way. formal office hours testing protocol. <laughs> oh, you want to get the X32 into the phone? Yeah. Okay, all yeah. right. Give me yeah, here, and here's, I mean, here's the reason for that is that, you know, for the, you know, idiotic apps that will not let you have external inputs um, into into them, the way we've gotten around it, like for Clubhouse, is using the... Dante to Bluetooth, and then it shows up as a Bluetooth headset inside of the inside of the iPhone, um, and uh, and so then you get this. I get this mic instead of my phone mic in in a clubhouse, and I will say, <laughs> when you quote unquote bend the rules related to that you dominate the, the clubhouse conversation because everyone else got their little phones. Suddenly there you have a radio mic and it just, it, 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 it's the most obvious, you know, whack, you know, you can see why they don't do it is they don't, they want to keep everybody on the same page, but I'm not interested in that. I would so, think the Bluetooth adapter worked fine though. So that it does, but good. it drops every once in a while and stops yeah. working. So that's, that's why I'd love to have a hardware c- connection to that um, as opposed to, so it'd be great. What I'm really hoping is that Apple, will allow us to basically, if Apple says the native phone is the, the native video is what's coming into the USB-C, and if it says the native mic is what's coming in over USB-C, it allows us as users to basically circumvent almost all controls that Instagram and others have put into their system. And there's nothing they can do about it because it's happening at the operating system. If Apple does the handshake and doesn't tell them what's happening, which I think is Apple's prerogative oftentimes. I mean, Apple doesn't have any reason to protect them. So we should just campaign for that <laughs> so that Apple will tell them natively now that we have USB-C, hey, this is just a, this is the, this is the mic you get to use or this is the, the camera you get to use. And then we get to, um, you know, it, it doesn't, it allows us to whack them on the head. <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead, Chris. This is Alex uh, fighting the fight that 10 people on the planet are, are, are uh, interested in. Um, uh, back to the well, football. Well, but, but I just want to say, if Apple did this, it means that every influencer will want to have an iPhone or iPad because it allows them to look way better. It's not a minor, it, I know it may seem like a, a very minor little detail, but if, if Apple did this, it would mean that every influencer uses a, an iOS device instead of Android because they can, and then Android would do it. And then basically it, it would, it would erase that ability to do it. And it's a big, de- it's, it, it actually is a big part of their business plan. And, you know, Apple could force, and, and Apple is no friend of Instagram. So Apple could easily, um, you know, really dig into something that they think is important, that Instagram thinks is important. Go ahead, Chris. Winning over the influencer uh, market. So back to the football and audio thing. I literally just last night had this discussion with one of my brothers about, you know, he's like, how come movies sound so bad on my TV? And I said, well, it's probably the TV uh, taking a 5-1 signal and trying to decode it into stereo because he's only going to use, he will, like most people, the vast majority of people are just going to turn on their TV and watch on their TV speakers. That is the bell curve of what people are actually doing. And I think it's, it's. It, it, I talked about the, the sort of tech bubble that, that, you know, we in this group live in. And we have to remember that there, the vast majority of people are not going to experience media the way we do. And we have to think about that. And I th- really think that the television industry has done themselves a disservice in not being better at detecting what speakers are actually being used and f- 
and decoding the audio properly so that you're not sitting there watching on stereo speakers listening to just the left and the right of an LCR or a 5.1, you know, where now you have no center channel uh, uh, dialogue to cut through and you're only listening to the, the left and the right. And it's, it's really, we're in a really bad place because so many people are dissatisfied with, with what they're listening to. It's a, it, I, I wish, I I wish they could fix it. I don't think it's a little though. I think that it is doing a mix down to the to the stereo. Like it's not the, doing the, it well. Tedious. It's not doing no, it well. No, no, no. The mix is that way. Like, like it's not like you know when it's not mixing down the same way because it will because it's just splitting the center channel to the right and left. You know, it's not. It's not the well. Mi- the mix. I, I'm, I'm just the vast just majority you. of people complain about this though. I know, but that's that is a choice that is a creative choice by the people making the content. It's not the TVs that are are having trouble. It is a creative choice by people making the content to blend the 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 the, the dialogue back further into the scene so that it doesn't stick out, so that it, so that it's part of the experience. That, I mean, when you talk to them, that's what they talk about: is they want it to be part. They want everything to matter, not just the dialogue. And we can disagree, and I, I disagree. I mean, I think that the, the big advantage of having 5.1 is that I have independent control over that center channel, and I can just bring it up. <laughs> I, can just, I can just turn the dialogue up. And but that's again, what, by the way, the... You the, are in a tiny, a tiny bubble you know, I, of the vast people. That's why, they're being disserviced. That's why Amazon and others are adding the dialogue um, enhancing. Enhanced. So there's an, an enhanced dialogue. What that does is it, it increases the... the um, it in, it increases the volume of the or the uh, of the center channel before it splits it to the right and left. So enhanced dialogue is in, is just taking that center channel and pushing it up because everything is done in five one at this point at least in five one or Atmos or whatever. So they generally have the dialogue sitting isolated from almost everything else in the center channel, and so they can just push that channel up. Of course, creatives you hate the idea that you could change what they did. But it's their own fault for doing what they're doing, <laughs> like it, which is, you know, like I don't, my, my wife and daughter will not, I mean, I don't, you know, I can listen to it. I can go either way oftentimes with dialogue, but they will not watch a show without captions at this point. Like they just, they just, they're not even, they're not even trying to play anymore, <laughs> like, you know, and, and, and it's, and I think that that's, that's been what's happened to that. And I will admit that over time it's become kind of invisible. The captions to me, I don't really notice them unless I can't understand what he's saying. And so it, it's become something that I don't think about as much as I used to. Go ahead, Jason. Uh, this just in, I, I just plugged in the iPhone to, uh, to Dante and I was able to Office get it into is now an open discussion. And, I know. and out of, okay. this has nothing we to gotta, do with the NFL. Okay. We, we have to stop going backwards. So we, this I know we started doing that. The first just, hour. just post another question that says, Hey, I figured this out. We'll get, we'll, we'll come back say to a few, it rather than a few more things about Fenwick Island now. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a peninsula. It's a peninsula. <laughs> All right. Next question. <laughs> Eric Kurz in Hartford, Connecticut writes in, is wrist better than SRT for video contributions? You know, I think that the, the, the advantage of wrist is is multicast, and that's pr- the primary advantage, in my opinion, is multicast. I don't think it's as, I, and it's also lighter on the network than than uh, SRT. Uh, I still think that SRT is better at reliably delivering the video content. It is a bit of a pig on the on the network uh, because it's sending ex- a lot of extra packets. But it is it is a more reliable than S- than wrist, in my opinion. Um, and so so I think that as for those of us who use SRT not as a delivery format, but as a con- um, contribution format to uh, to a show, I think most of us would rather use SRT than wrist. But the um, 
but you know, there's some there again, there are some advantages to wrist if you want to do multicast. Next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas writes in, so this morning I just signed up as an Amazon influencer and want to complete my storefront and start reviewing products. What will determine success or failure in this endeavor? And he has a link. Courtney? Well, I think you're going to have to pick a topic. You're currently, you know, if we look at your link here, uh, Austin Spring. I'm not sure what you'd be reviewing. The weather? The the river? I'm not sure. Uh, so pick a, an area of products to concentrate on. Maybe microphones, because you see that a lot. <laughs> I was going to see that. <laughs> but uh, and once you develop a following, if you develop a YouTube channel uh, with, you know, and I've noticed this on YouTube over the last couple of years, is the crazier the thumbnail to bring you to a YouTube channel, the more traffic you're going to get, the more traffic you're going to get, you can point it to your Amazon uh, influencer website. Uh, so I'm not sure how you, you know, you put the cart before the horse. I'm sure Jeffrey has more better advice than I do because I'm not an influencer. I just, you know, watch those who are. Jeffrey? Yeah, I have been an influencer since, well, I was I was an affiliate for many years and then I became an, I was part of their beta program when they started the influencer program. Uh, so I've been doing this for over three years now. There are many different things that you have to take into account. The first thing is this is not YouTube. This is a closed walled garden uh, where they want you to talk up your uh, talk up products. Uh, so if you're going to come and you're going to say this product sucks, they're going to kick you off. It's simple as that. Uh, you got the channel, but until you start showing reviews, you're not really in. Uh, there's a, I think it's like three videos that you have to post before they start uh, accepting it and showing on the pages right there. Um, you have The best thing to do is to go through those rules one by one, because if you do anything, like for instance, in a video, if I say the price at all of the product, it gets rejected. If I say you guys are going to love it, it gets rejected. It's got to be a very sterile, but yet very informative video. And I've done thousands of videos on Amazon, uh, and a lot of you, uh, those videos then poured over to YouTube or some of the other channels. And then, of course, you have what their shorts version, which are called Inspire videos, uh, which are vertical videos. Uh, and they're running a promotion right now called This or That, where you take two products and you say, do you want, do you want this or do you want that? And, uh, and then you got to promote it. So it's, it's a lot of products. It's a lot of promotion. Uh, the best thing to do is there's a lot of good Facebook groups out there that are trying to wade through these waters because the one thing is they do change a lot. Because once again, this is not YouTube. You can't just speak your mind freely in some cases. And then, of course, if you want to, you can join my mastermind group, which actually doesn't exist. Go ahead, Chris. I think there's a mar- you're totally right, uh, Courtney, about the the thumbnails. The thumbnails are are super super important. Uh, I think Mr. B spends an enormous amount of time. You know, uh, all the really big uh, thing. I think that there is a uh, a YouTube channel that we could make called Thanks for Clicking, and it has it's every video is going to have a great thumbnail because the video is not about the topic in the thumbnail, but the video is about how we made the thumbnail for the video. Okay, so literally, so like it might be like, 
I ate a pizza jumping out of a plane. And it's and it's all the stuff. And then you click on it and you say, okay, obviously we're not jumping out of a plane with a pizza, but let me show you how we made that thumbnail. Okay? And so we rented a plane, we shot it. Sh- this is a channel. This is absolutely. It's called Thanks for Clicking. Channel. Thanks for clicking. You know, it's like it's like uh, I scooped with my dog, okay, and and then you click on it. It's like, hey, I don't even have a dog, but I'm going to show you how we made that thumbnail. And you coming to and you, you from bring the in experts. Network. You have guest network. Listen, listen. You have guest photographers come in. Hey, we got Peter McKinnon to come in and take this photo for thanks for clicking this week. And here we got this dog and and we put a bubble and just like, thanks for clicking. This is absolutely a channel and we could be killing with this. Let's do it. All right. I got it. We'll do it. Am I wrong? I mean, Here's this the is worst good, part. right? It's going to do way better than any channel I've ever worked on. It'll, it'll, <laughs> Like a it's quarter gonna put million. office hours to shame. I like know. Oh no! Well, seconds. it's gonna put every every other thing. It's gonna be like you're gonna have like a million. We're gonna be like we're gonna be influencers of thumbnails. Thanks for clicking. It's it, uh, okay. Can, can somebody uh, register that? Thanks. You have Bye. to register. Hurry up. Okay. Clickbait. I'm just the idea guy. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeffrey. I'd love to say that we could do that for Amazon, but unfortunately, there's a lot of other factors that are involved in there. Like for instance, once again, you can't put Amazon onto a thumbnail. Um, I am way yeah. over the Paul Wallace influencer thing. We're, we've moved past that. Yeah, but it's is, it's all about thanks the, for clicking now. This, is, moved this is still the question, the though. Global com- But anyway, domination. my whole point, just finishing up, the whole point is that uh, that every time you change a thumb, thumbnail on a video you do, it then has to go through a re-verification process. And every second that it's down, you don't get any money off of it. So you've got to be very picky. And I suppose you could go up to YouTube and put your video up on YouTube and do all the thumbnail A-B tests from there and then choose the best one. But the real question is, does that port over from YouTube to Amazon and work? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so I'm really excited about the thanks for clicking. All right. Um, next question. John Preto in Las Vegas, Nevada writes in, I rewatched the Neuralink presentation from eight months back. It was intriguing to see their work with influence in their interface into the visual cortex. Thoughts? Go, ahead, John. So so they actually did an interface with a monkey where they did an interface into the visual cortex directly with a camera. And right now they only have 64 channels going into the brain, but they've got they've got a um, they've got a roadmap up to 32,000, and so that people that are, who have been blind their entire life will be able to see again. It's absolutely spectacular. So when we can get rid of our eyes and our ears, which are very poor bandpass filters, it's going to be great. Who wants to be a Borg? <laughs> Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think the monkey uh, uh, demonstration was was reading the visual cortex to determine position uh, using the monkey's eyesight, who was a sighted monkey, to position things on the screen. But uh, just think, you know, if he if you use the uh, Neuralink to input images into the brain for those that are blind, it would be great. But you know, if he uses if he ties it into his AI, it's going to hallucinate for you and uh, they'll actually get to get real time hallucinations. And every now and then it's going to play a Tesla commercial. So Chris. Chris, can you hear us? I, I was curious what kind of monkey? I don't know what kind of monkey. And is is John Prado trying to be an AI influencer? <laughs> Macaque. Macaque. Uh, good, Bill. Um, 
So the novel that I'm doing for uh, audiobooks that I just finished and it's in final stages talks about this a lot. And the author did a really good job in his conceit. It's people changing to a new virtual reality football, watching things. The old football teams are going away, replaced by this fancy thing. But they're doing retinal implants that that literally surgically go into your eyes if you want the whole experience from that. Let me just say, it does not go well. Uh, so a lot of the authors who are thinking about the future are are playing with these ideas of how much good versus how much not so good comes out of neural implants into people uh, as this technology evolves. It's an interesting field for discussion. Really good book. I'm really enjoying that. Uh, you know, we there's been a lot of things where people on the front, you know what they say, again, I've said it many times, if you're, two steps, if you're one step ahead, you're a leader. If you're two steps ahead, you're a martyr. And I think volunteering for this right now might be two steps ahead. Um, you know, we were really excited about the idea that we could x-ray people's feet. This is 50 years ago or 60 years ago or whatever. We could x-ray people's feet to figure out what size shoe they should wear. So they were x-raying all the time until people started getting a lot of cancer. You know, so so a lot of times when we first try these things, eh, they may not work as well as we expected them to. So I would I would uh, proceed with caution. Right, go ahead, next question. David Brady in New York, New York writes in, what methods are there to determine out what class of USB-C might be in your EDC kit? Are there any utilities to test and certify? Jeffrey? There is hardware and software that's available for these types of tests. Uh, if you go to Amazon, you can get the very cheap ones. Uh, the one that I like the most is the, uh, the one from Pluggable, because of course I trust Pluggable devices uh, more than some of these other ones that have no-name brands. Uh, you can get very, there's, there's a pretty expensive oscilloscope that does a lot of testing with USB-C cables. Then you have to read it and you have to read all the waveforms and, and understand how it, how it goes. But then the, the easiest way, if you're doing data, the best thing to do is just plug it into a hard drive, plug it in the computer, download the OWC software and, and see what the data's pass-through rates are. And remember, it's also going to be the device that you're on, that you're testing, the computer that you're on, and the cable in between. Go to Courtney. about that bad mouse click um the one i don't use one for doing data uh, for checking i don't know if it does data throughput but power monitoring uh for whether or not the USB-C can provide 12 volts three volts this this shows you current it has uh it's really tiny i keep one of these in my kit it, it has a charting uh, uh, oscillograph, basically. It shows you a graph of the current cons uh, consumption over a period of time, and it records it. Um, and it's handy. It'll tell you <clears throat> whether the uh, item that you're plugging in to charge uh, is charging and the amount of current that it's consuming charging and whether or not it's smart or not to uh, flip it up to higher current charging, that kind of stuff. But I don't think it uh, it meters the data throughput if that's what you're looking for. Yeah, I have a drive, um, an NVMe drive that I know will go to, um, you know, I know it'll it'll go up over a gig. And I don't know about two gigs, which is the up, upper end of the 3.2, I believe. Um, and what I have to admit, what I do is I plug that drive into a known cable into into my computer and I run a speed, just d black magic disk speed, ensure that it's doing that. Now, if it runs the drive, it means it's carrying power. And if it runs the 
and if it, if it, then, then I'm doing a data test of a known cable. So I, I say, that, okay, that, that's the number I'm looking for, of 3.2 cable. And then I start testing the cables and I start like deciding whether they are the right, <laughs> whether they can go that speed. And I, I mark them with electrical tape. So, um, so I have little, little colors of electrical tape that tell me what they are. This is why the USB-C, uh, why it was so hilarious that the EU would require USB-C uh, because they've burned into a format that is just chaos. Like it's just complete chaos. And and it was just, it just shows you how, you know, politicians are digital children. Um, anyway, it, it, a quick reminder that, uh, uh, that, um, uh, that you can ask questions anytime anytime during the, during, the, during the hour. But right now is good. And you can see this little QR code here. Um, and uh, you can use that QR code. You go to askofficehours.com and uh, go ahead and throw your questions in. We'll look at the moderator page. We'll bring them in as, as we go. So go ahead and ask the questions there. Or of course, if you're in Makana, go ahead and ask them in Makana. Remember to vote on the questions if you're in Makana um, so that we know which ones you'd like us to ask next. Let's go to the next question. Paul Wall, who's in Austin, Texas, writes in the 146th day Writers Guild of America strikes since May 2nd uh, may be over. Will SAG-AFTRA follow suit? He includes a link. Courtney? Well, that's a different negotiation that hasn't really started yet. Or, you know, I think they may have had one round for SAG-AFTRA. Writers Guild came to a tentative agreement that still has to be uh, mailed out to the rank and file for approval. Uh, so who knows if it's going to get passed. But those that uh, scuttlebutt is that the... Uh, uh, right, the negotiators on the Writers Guild side are pretty happy with the uh, settlement they agreed on. Uh, whether or not it passes muster when it goes out to the rest of the of the uh, guild, it remains to be seen. But usually, the uh, negotiators will send out, or the board of directors will send out a a uh, postcard or something saying that they approve it and they uh, encourage everyone to vote for it. So I think everyone's ready for the strike to be over. That will be great. But it still could be a long road ahead because Screen Actors Guild is now going to have to go into negotiations because AMPTP only negotiates with one union at a time. And Writers Guild was the first on the table. So next up is SAG. And I just received a, a postcard saying that SAG is, vo is uh, asking for, for uh, member approval of a strike vote against game producers. So that's next on the table for Screen Actors Guild. They're going to, uh, if they can't come to agreement, uh, renegotiate their contracts with all the video game producers. So more to come. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, this has been interesting to watch, particularly living in California, because there's so much discussion of it. I, my fingers are crossed that it, it appears that this momentary breakthrough, at least what they're saying, will lead to the end. I know one of the big motivating factors for the Producers Guild, Guild of America is that they can still salvage a little of the 23-24 television season if they get it done real quick here. Uh, if not, they risk losing a whole year cycle, and I don't think anybody wants to see that happen. That'd be real tough on everybody. Yeah, you, I, I think one of the advantages that Amped has is that they just went ahead and just waited for the for SAG to come back, uh, and it really puts you know the, the members in a lot of pressure to to approve it. Um, it does seem like the negotiators at not SAG, I'm sorry, uh, at at um, uh, for the WGA. The um, so I think that there's there'll be less pressure. There's more chance that whatever the negotiators came up with that they decided was good is going to get through because people aren't going to niggle as much because they're trying to make their house payments. So I think that that's the you know that I think there's a 
really high probability this will go through. Um, and and I, I definitely salute the, the, the WGA for, for sticking it out. I, I, I have to admit that I was much more pessimistic about how long this was going to take. Um, it's really good for me <laughs> for them to come, to come back to work because a bunch of us that have our businesses wrapped around them getting back to work and especially SAG. So um, we're, we're excited to see it um, move forward. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, it seems that modern cars are less open to audio upgrades than those in the past because the radio head unit is more integrated with the rest of the vehicle. What have your experiences been with audio upgrades on today's cars? Good, Nigel. So if you go to CES, there's a whole hole with uh, audio upgrades to your car. I mean, how much bass do you need? Uh, the reality, I think, for most of this is that for most people, what they put in their car is good enough. And and that that's really what's happened to the general car industry. Uh, plus the fact it's really nice not to have your car broken into to steal the radio. So mostly good enough has killed that. But there are there are two or three definite segments emerging. Or, or that have emerged. One is clearly the people who want the bass and uh, want to pimp out their rides in a way that they could listen to the music loudly and deafen everyone within a three-mile radius. The second is people who want to upgrade their vehicles uh, for things like CarPlay and Google Play. So that's particularly true if you have um, a Tesla um, or something like that that doesn't support CarPlay and you want CarPlay. The trick there, of course, is that Tesla's integrated the map with its self-driving, so you won't get those benefits. You'll be running a, a dual system. Uh, the third particular market is for very other specialized devices, uh, be they medical, be they other things. People are, are, are integrating those sorts of devices in with the vehicles as well. Courtney? Yeah, because the uh, entertainment system in a car is tied into the CAN bus system that controls a lot of the lighting and the air conditioning and a lot of the other stuff in the car and sometimes turning on and off safety features like uh, automatic braking and uh, collision detection, that kind of stuff. Uh, they have to be very careful in any changes they make to that firmware because if that thing crashes, it's a safety issue in NTSB and they're heavily, heavily regulated. That's why when you use CarPlay or, or Android Auto, uh, there are certain uh, apps that you can't launch on either of those because they don't want you distracted by watching your TV screen in, in the front of the vehicle. Uh, so it really limits you on audio only. And uh, so it's doubtful that uh, an over-the-air update will happen very frequently. That's because they have to go through so much safety testing to make sure it's bulletproof before they send it out. And sending it out over uh you know the cellular network which those things are connected to can be dicey and if it bricks the if it bricks the processor because it's got a bad transmission you go under a bridge or something while you're doing an update uh that would be very bad good jeffrey so i did also read this in the way of that uh you're if you're not talking about car stereo but but about the sensors inside the car either way in 2016 the auto industry adopted a set of standards that would allow you to do anything with your car to make changes that were uh, uh possible like for instance we talked about this a few weeks ago a company called comma which i i uh, i interviewed at ces uh that could actually replace even a Tesla's uh, internal driving system with their own driving system. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
it's uh, it's very possible. Then, like I said, there's a set of standards that have to be followed on there. Can it be hacked? Absolutely, can be hacked, but it's also not that uh, not that difficult to uh, change out. Good, Chris. You know, we don't live in the '60s and '70s anymore, where the audio systems in cars were horrible. They're actually quite good now, and so the the like. Uh, Nigel said, the need to upgrade is is not like it used to be. I would, however, recommend that you use the same logic in buying a purchasing an automobile as we do when we buy our phones and our laptops, because the thing you're going to buy is likely not going to get upgraded. So, you know, go for it. I, I will say when I bought my truck a couple years ago, I bought the best sound system that they had. And I don't necessarily listen to music a lot, but I, it was very satisfying. About a month ago, I was in the truck with, with my wife and she was in a music mood and she there was a song. I, I always give the cable to my, my stepdaughter sits in the back and she DJs the drive to wherever we're going. And a song came up and my wife reached over and turned the volume knob up. And there was this this moment of glee. She was like, oh my goodness, that sounds good. And I was like, yeah, I paid for that. <laughs> yeah, I think that generally the average, I, I agree that generally the average car audio has just gotten a lot better. You know, that, that generally it fits into that realm of that good enough got, has gotten better. The we, reason we were tweaking everything is because the what was going out for a long time was not close to awful. good enough. Yeah. It was completely awful. And I think that that became a competitive uh, element for many cars. And as a result, that, that was... it making a good audio system in the grand scheme of things in a car is a relatively cheap upgrade to increase the production, the perceived production value of the car. In yeah. fact, if you don't have a great engine, the car, the, the, the stereo is even more important, uh, to, especially the ability to get loud. Cause you can just, you can just drown out the, the engine noise. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah. And if you have a terrible exhaust system, let me tell you, that's what those real, the, the CES installations with those subwoofers are for. Yeah, um, I, I don't know what else to say that hasn't already been said. Uh, ditto for most things. It is kind of fun, though. I'm getting I'm getting ready to swap out the stereo in my cars. It's interesting timing for this over the next couple of weeks. And it's, it's an old I have an old uh, caravan and I'm just, it's a, and it's just too din. So I'm just ripping it out, but trying to choose between all the different. Oh, options. you could do so much with two din, Alex. It yeah, is exactly. incredible. No, it's like I was like amazed at all the different things that I that I could do. So that's what's held me up is that there are so many options with ones that are that old. Go to Chris. I will say to wrap this up, the 17 speaker Harman Kardon system in the Dodge Ram trucks is pretty good. <laughs> Next question. Mike Beardmore in uh, Belford, UK, writes in, has Office Hours discussed Mylio.com photo organizing tool? I search on oh.global without any hits. Good, Bill. I had not heard of it before this morning. I took a quick look at it, and I'll show you the splash page, and I'll tell you the one thing that concerns me. It's not a big concern, but whenever I see how they popped out for free, it reminds me of the old adage, if you can't tell how they're making their money, you are the product. So I don't know exactly what the back end of this is doing. I kind of looked around through uh, some of the things, and it has plans, so maybe it's not really for free. Maybe it's one of those things that has that's linked to a different kind of um, – revenue model. But that always makes me feel a little less than, you know, look, if you've got a good program, tell me what the price is, because I'm going to judge it to be worth what you're charging me. If you're trying to 
to sneak me into it saying, you don't have to pay anything for this. That's not a very good business model. So that you know there's a back end somewhere. So I just look down that path and see whether or not the tools that they provide for organization and cropping and all the rest of the things for your photos connect to that or whether they're doing something like heavily promoting packages of you know prints or whatever it is. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, before the age of uh, generative AI, I would have thought, well, this might be okay, okay, if they use my, you know, email address or something, if they harvest my personal information for uh, marketing purposes. But nowadays, you know, if they're harvesting all of your images that you send up to the cloud, read the fine print in the end user license agreement, because that's where you'll find all the little gotchas in there about the rights to use the images that are online. Because they could be training their AI off of your images. And who knows, you know, you're going to see some mid-journey supermodel pictures with your face on them. Yeah, I, I think that the, uh, I, I think the biggest problem is, is that there's good, relatively good photo organizing apps on both Windows and, and, and Mac um, that, are, that just come with the operating system. I know photos on, on the Apple side is incredibly good. <laughs> There's so many features tied into that thing that unless the only place that you really would go from after photos is, oh, I really want to do tweaking, I want Lightroom. But to me, there's Lightroom and and, and photos. And I have to admit, I don't even go to Lightroom. I just do everything in photos. I, I'll go out to Photoshop or do something if I have to deliver something. But in general, um, everything I do is just in photos. Uh, Chris? Can't hear you, Chris. Uh, I literally just discovered the other day in photos on the iPhone, I think it might be a 17 feature, but, uh, uh, possibly not, that when you go into the edit mode, there's a little beep beep little ellipsis up there and you can click on that and it get, pops up other photo editing apps that you have on your phone. You can, through the photos app, go into that app, do some stuff, boop-a-doop, come back and the revert button will undo what the other app did to the photo. Oh, that's interesting. So you can right. get back to the original photo if you right. decide, eh, I got to start over. Depends on which, which photo app you're dealing with, but yeah, you can. I did, I, I did one called Quick, which I use to put text over things sometimes on the phone just for mm -hmm. fun. Uh, it's not really all that fast. Um, but yeah, I totally agree that there's a, there's got to be a language, and maybe there's a, a word for it where it's like, um, actually, Apple does have a word, I can't remember. It's like hidden power. It's not like, look at all the buttons we put, but it's like, yeah. eh, there's a lot of stuff under the hood. You just got to know how to open the hood. Yeah, I was, I'm doing another demo of, uh, a little demo for USDZ, you know, on the, on Keynote. And then I'm going to go into pages. But, but the one thing that I, I realized there's all these little things that I do all the time. And as I was trying to figure out how I was going to describe them in the video, I just realized how elegant a lot of the stuff in Keynote is that has, it doesn't have so many tools that it gets confusing, but it has tools that no one knows that are there. <laughs> you know, like, and, and people don't use them very well. Like I'm using this thing about talking about how to do a Bezier curve from, you know, a curve to identify something. And I'm like, you got to pull this down, this, the, the, you got to pull the Bezier arm directly down and this one directly over and it'll produce a better curve. You know, like, like, you know, and, and there's these little things that these little fine tuning, you know, the whole thing is mostly about USDZ, but I want to try to tour people through some of the other details that the, that the app has. And, and it's, um, but I think that that was a, uh, I've been trying, you know, the, what I've gotten very clear is how, how good Apple is at hiding things. You know, like it's just, you know, like, oh, there's a button. Like it, there's so many, like again, in Keynote, there are so many things about how you group what comes out when and how it comes out and when it comes out and everything else. 
But if you didn't, there's no, you barely see that in the manual and you, and there's almost no coverage of it, you know, and that Apple does that all the time. The Final Cut team refers to this as progressive disclosure, I think. Is that right, Bill? Progressive disclosure? Yeah, where that's the term they've like, been using. At, it, at the surface, it looks like very simple, but all of a sudden it's like, oh, 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 look, oh, wow. And all of a sudden you're I can you're also do that. I can a, also do that. I can also, Yeah, wow. exactly. Yeah. Hey, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, one thing I didn't mention is that uh, I use Google Photos because it's cross-platform. I've got both platforms, and uh, I don't have any iPhones, but I do have Macs and PCs. And uh, it's great because it uh, takes the photos, every photo from my that I take on my phone, automatically then is available uh, on all the other PCs uh, instantly without me telling it. It stores it in the Google Drive. And it gives me access uh, cross-platform, works with Linux, Mac, PCs, iOS, Android. And uh, and it's also great, uh, you know, you have the Google search engine, which is extremely powerful for searching through photos and organizing. You can have it, you know, search for, give me all the pictures of my kids, and it'll know what your kids look like and, you know, where they go to school and, you know, what time they get off. Uh, anyway, uh, it does have an extensive extensive search and visual uh, visual analysis capabilities for searching for things within pictures. Go ahead, Bill. I just got a ping in Discord from a friend of mine who says um, that since I've spoken at some conferences in the past, I actually may have an account for this. So I'm actually the Milio that we're talking about in the question. So I actually may take a look at it and see because there is some room for improvement on the basic things. I, too, use the iPhotos app or photos app and i get a lot of mileage out of that but i'm interested in organizational structures how they use metadata and the rest of that so i think i'm going to take a look at this uh more closely than i have uh, my friend says they're now fairly well regarded in the industry so they may be doing some interesting research so i'm going to take a look at that next question Douglas Carmichael writes in, how do you decide when to introduce a new product or technology into your workflow? While stagnation can be the proverbial enemy, I'd be concerned about the unexpected bugs and failures on a show and thus making a bad impression on your end. Jason? My answer is, uh, how do I do it in parallel? I, I, if I, you know, a workflow is a systematic thing. So if you want to introduce the old, you know, the new thing for the old thing, you actually duplicate that process and systematically decide when and how to, um, to actually replace one with the other. The answer is not all at once. Chris? I'd love to hear what Alex has to say about this, but I'll tell you that I know that I take a little bit of my time, whether I do it per week or per day, depending on how busy I am. And I'm always playing. I always want to like look over that fence, like what is coming up next? And um, every once in a while, I'll come across something. Like, for example, when the, the Blackmagic camera uh, phone app thing, I spent like half the day messing with that. And then I made a little tutorial and I shared it with the people in our office and said, you know, this is something that we should be um, courting, thinking about. This, this is a potential workflow. I'm not saying I want to change it today, but we should all kind of have that in our, you know, Rolodex of ideas and know that, oh, actually, wait, there was that thing Fenwick mentioned a couple months ago. Let, this might solve that problem. So you kind of want to be doing it away from your main job, but always be looking for that next thing. Bill? Yeah. Um, uh, 
I just lost my train of thought. Sorry about okay. that. I was reading uh, something over here. My all I was going to say is that I, I tend to do things for free for other people to test things. That's what I do. Like I, you know, office hours is a giant lab, you know, for a lot of us to figure things out. Um, but, um, but I think that I often do, like we've done things where we've covered soccer games and I've gone down and covered. And usually what I'm doing is experimenting with a new pipeline, like what we're doing for, we, we haven't been asking for sponsors, for instance, for, uh, the conference coverage, because we're experimenting with a whole bunch of different technologies and a whole bunch of different things, and I don't want to be accountable for it. I just want to figure it out. And so I, I like to live in this kind of freewheeling area for a while, and then usually I lock in and start providing it as a service, and that's been really successful for for me. I mean, sometimes it takes years to develop. I, you know, I started thinking about HDR um, years before we were asked for it. So we started doing little tests in the afternoons and figuring stuff out and failing and trying to figure things out and failing. And next thing you know, we got, because we were talking about it and showing little examples to clients of, oh, look at this cool thing that we're playing with. We got invited into those conversations. We got to start working on those productions. And before I know it, I was doing a lot of work in that area. Um, and so, so that, you know, a lot of times you want to be thinking about that tank track of what's out there and just kind of slowly playing with it. But you don't try, I don't try to insert it into my things that I want to get to. I don't try to insert into two days work. Usually oftentimes I'm experimenting with things that won't be useful for a year or years. Uh, next question. Phil Ross in Northern Ireland writes in, I see, an, I see on Amazon you can get rid of RJ45 to XLR cables. Is this a good option instead of having to run XLR cables through the walls? Uh, it's, a, it's a home studio build. I'm looking to use a number of SM7Bs, so I was unsure if it would handle them. And this is Phil Ross from Northern Ireland. Uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, um, so there's a couple things to consider when you're uh, doing RJ uh, RJ45 to uh, to XLR cables. The first one is you got to uh, want to make sure that this is not a DMX cable that insert that you're getting on Amazon because they'll have they'll have the four pin DMX, they'll have the three pin DMX, and then of course they'll have uh, uh, regular audio uh, XLR to RJ45. Um, you need to go single cable. You can't plug it into a router. You can't do anything like that or else it, it just doesn't work. They have the same types of boxes for HDMI cables as well. And those are usually powered. These are mostly passive. You can also get uh, uh, up to four plug snakes because, of course, in a uh, in, in a uh, uh, Cat5 cable, Cat6 cable, there's eight wires and, of course, the grounded shield. Uh, so you can utilize those. The best thing to do is if you are going to run, you want to get Cat6 or better cabling. You want to get something that's well shielded or else uh, or, or else your uh, your audio is going to leak through and, and you're going to have a whole ton of problems. And then some of these devices also make, make you buy what's called an XLR cat cable. So it looks like an XLR can, but you look inside and there's a little cat plug right in there. So if you're going to buy them, those are the things that you have to watch out for. Good, Courtney. Yeah, be careful and test. Uh, you don't. You may not know if you're into a situation where the cabling was already run. You may not know whether it's shielded or not because there's Cat Six unshielded as well. And uh, if it's not shielded, you're going to run into a lot of problems because a lot of times they'll run that stuff through the same conduit as the AC power runs. And if it's not shielded, it's going to pick up hum, especially if you're running mic level signals. I, you know, you could use it for line level signals without too much problems, but. Uh, Line level signal because they're twisted pairs and they're each of those pairs are twisted around each other. So there's you know four pair in a standard Cat six. 
but make sure there's a shield and make sure that the adapter that you use ties the shield of the uh of the RJ45 to the uh uh to the shield of the XLR connector and also uh if you have you know if you just happen to have these cat6 receptacles in every room of the house you know Make sure they're not tied into some router somewhere, because then if somebody plugs in a you know video feed or a, thinking it's an internet connection, a LAN feed, it's going to really mess up your audio. Because like uh, Jeffrey said, these are for point-to-point extensions where you're using that cable to just get the audio from one location to another so it's not distributed, it doesn't run into a router, and it's not connected to any LAN or local area network type of switch anywhere. Next question. Robin Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia writes in, what audio tool do you use for testing individual speakers in a 5.1, 7.1, and 9.2 configuration? I mean, for us, we're usually feeding them directly out of a mixer. So we're going through each one of them and breaking them to, to figure out what, what we hear on each channel. So that's usually the, and, and I have a, I build a, for embedded ones, basically, I, I will build a, a channel checker. So I have videos that will play out that have channels right, you know, right, <laughs> right, left, center, you know, left surround, right surround, you know, and I'll do all those and I'll, I'll put them all together and I'll have little speakers light up in front of it so that we know which what we're, what we're looking for. Um, and usually that ties the whole thing together to, to test those things. Next question. Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida writes in, Procreate came out recently with an animation tool called Dreams. Does anyone have any thoughts on this new software by Procreate? Go ahead, Bill. I think it looks pretty interesting. I mean, one of the things that surprised me, I've always liked Procreate, if for no other reason than the fact that they have a separate app for iPads and a separate app for the phone that kind of scales down. I think if, if companies who put the attention to detail to take the time to do the, a little bit different code for those two uh, screen things tells me that they're thinking a lot. Dreams moves them into the role of animation and, and, and kind of an animation tutorial thing. Here's the splash page for it. You could see they're really going after kind of that YouTuber or, or uh, other. Um, it, it works on iPad great. Um, it, it seems pretty modern and it seems like they perked up the code. It's brand new, so there's not a lot of uh, chat about it out on the web and the news groups and things like that. But it looks like an interesting program. And, you know, animation is one of the hardest things to do in the old ways. And so I think people are trying to use these new platforms to give young people, particularly people coming into animation for the first time, some really cool tools to keep them excited about the idea. It, it doesn't appear to me to be a full-scale replacement for any of the professional animation tools, but as a step-in program, it looks really cool to me. Coming up, uh, uh, th- we're going to be talking about speaking at events in just a minute, uh, just right at the top of the hour. Uh, but th- this week is a busy week. Uh, today, um, tomorrow, we're going to have Eric uh, Geisler here, uh, uh, Geisler, sorry. Um, and uh, Eric is a two-time Emmy winner and prominent authority in post-production with five primetime television Emmy Award nominations and over 25 years of working in computer animation, visual effects, film, and television. He's also an entrepreneur, and he's working on some pretty cool things. Uh, so, uh, so Eric... 
America is really going to be great. It's going to be a great day tomorrow. So I would highly recommend coming. Uh, Wednesday, we'll talk about equalization, um, you know, and, and how the EQ curves work. Um, Thursday, we're going to have Stephen Wharton, who's the chief operating officer and chief technical officer of Skycam. Uh, so that Skycam we talked about earlier um, that, uh, you know, go, goes all over the football field. They're going to be here to talk a little bit about how all of that works. And uh, Friday, we, Viz is going to be joining us um, and talking about production in the cloud. So that should be a, um, a really, it's a really busy week <laughs> that we have here. You'll notice that a lot of these weeks are getting a lot busier, and this has to do with just the, the teams that are working on really making sure that these second hours are, are getting better and better and better. So, um, so if you're interested in being on one of those councils, let us know. You can do that in the email. There's like a volunteer button um, in, the, in the emails that go out. Um, so definitely take a look at that. Of course, Saturday is uh, two hours of Q&A. One thing to know about Saturday is that we are doing a lot of testing. We're testing HDR and 5.1. You'll see that slowly get better um, as we go through every Saturday. Uh, and we'll, we're t- slowly tightening that all up. And you'll see us start to experiment with other things there. So Saturday is kind of an experiment. It's two hours of Q&A, but it's also experimenting. Of course, Sunday is retrospection. Um, so we're doing, this is a place where you can talk about comments and concerns and questions about office hours. Let's go ahead and jump into the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour, um, and uh, it's good to have everybody here. Um, and uh, we are going to be talking about speaking at events. And one of the reasons that that uh, we wanted to bring this up and have this as part of the discussion is really that it is um, a really great way to build connection with other people. So um, this is, I will admit, this is a tool that I have used for the last 30 years, is that when in doubt, go speak in front of people. And um, now I, I I will admit for me, it has to do with the fact that I'm a fair, I, I know this will sound crazy because I'm on shows all the time, but I'm a little bit of an introvert. I'm actually not that, I'm not, I have I, I have good coping skills, um, but but I'm not particularly, uh, you know, left to my own devices. I don't even, most days I don't even make it to the pool. <laughs> I'm in my house. I'm often in my room. I'm not, I'm not super social, uh, a super social person. And, um, and so uh, I use this because it's much easier for me to get out in front of people and and talk about a subject that I know. Um, And then, then, then the onus is on them to come talk to me. (laughs) So, so I don't have to go out and introduce myself to anybody. And so, uh, so, and I, you know, one thing I will say is that we'll talk about a little bit of this over time, but it is an overtime kind of conversation. The way you get into this and the way that you um, build up in, into this into this model is something that is you know really creates a, a stable connection of meeting lots of people all the time. But it takes time. This is you know this is a, what what I will consider a farming conversation, not a hunting and gathering conversation. So most people, when they think of networking, they're really thinking about they're in a hunting and gathering mentality. I'm going to go and I'm going to hand out cards and I'm going to go to network you know little mixers and I'm going to do all that stuff. That's a hunting and gathering mentality, um, and it is uh, it's everybody starts with a hunting and gathering mentality. But civilizations are built on farming. You know, and so the thing is, is that if you want to build something that's stable and you want to build something that is that is going to keep on growing and keep on providing opportunity, you have to think about things in long curves. You know, you have to think about how do you promote yourself and how do you um, and, and really when I say promote yourself, it's how do you connect to other people? Promoting yourself is, is I know, gets excited, you know, we're influencers and all this other stuff. But but I think that it is important to really think about building that ecosystem of connections around around you. And, and one of the key ways 
ways to do that is to speak in front of other people. And you can see one way that we do this here is, you know, this panel <laughs> that we have here that, that, that people jump into. And by sharing what we know, we're using our knowledge as currency to connect with other people. And, um, you know, and I think that that's really important. I'll keep on coming back to this every week is that, you know, a lot of people think of their knowledge as an asset, like it's a, something that they, to hold on to. And really knowledge is, is your connections with people are assets. Your, your knowledge is a currency. And what you want to do is build that connection with the currency of I know something. Because nowadays, knowing something is more, every day it becomes more and more momentary that you'll know this thing and no one else will because the, the, the speed at which knowledge is moving around is so much higher. You want to take advantage of it in, in the same way that, you know, I, you want to provide a service immediately. Like I'm going to put out a whole bunch of stuff about USDZ on in the different platforms. Why? Because I've been thinking about it for a long time. I can help a lot of people, you know, understand why it's important and no one else is doing that right now. <laughs> so, so, and, and, you know, um, three months from now, there'll be lots of videos out there and there'll be lots of things out there, but you want to try to figure out how do you provide that service? And sometimes it's evergreen. I mean, I've talked about you know, I talk about certain things all the time. I have set build builds of how a visual effects shot gets done or how to do green screen screen or how to do these other things. The The main thing that I do um, as I get started, how I got started was really writing articles and showing up at user group meetings. So I would, I would show up at user group meetings in Denver, Colorado. That's where I really first started doing computer graphics. And there was a pre-press things. So I would come up and do Photoshop tricks. Then I would do little things that I figured out how to do in Quark. And I had figured them out last week. <laughs> like, you know, like I'll show something and, and sometimes I will figure them out. I did a talk on um, camera mapping or what ILM used to call make sticky. And I had not fully figured it out until about an hour before I spoke at NAB about it. And I got super high ratings and everyone said that, that, that this was the, one of the best talks of their post-production. Post but it was, you know, and it was a little bit of a hair raiser. I, I, I decided to never do that again. Um, but, but I will say that, um, that you, you know, sometimes these speaking engagements will force you to get better at something because you've decided, sometimes you think you know it. And then when you have to explain it, you don't know it. So it helps you do that. So what I would say is, it's really important it is as part of it is to figure out ways to share, whether that's a blog post or whether that's videos or whether that's speaking. It's just a really easy way to connect with other people. And it takes, but it take, you have to understand it takes a lot of time. Um, it's, it's something that, or not a lot of time all at one time, but it takes a little bit of time all the time to do this, to do this connection with other people and f finding ways to, um, to get connected to, to people. And now I'll hand it off to... We have a, uh, almost everybody in the panel has something to say now. Go ahead, Jason. Probably because a lot of us have done this for a long time and it's a lot of fun and you covered a whole bunch of it. Uh, my, my immediate thought, I, I'm this, this harkens back, I think it was, yeah, 2014, I did this talk at NAB. And by the way, for those who are thinking, oh, that's an illegal uh, shot of the Las Vegas Strip. No, it wasn't. It wasn't when we actually did the presentation uh, because that's how long ago it was. Uh, the, the drone laws hadn't really caught up. But, you know, there's, there is something to be said for presenting things in a way that are not, I am the expert. And instead, you know, taking your audience by the hand and saying, let me show you this insanely cool thing that, that, that I figured out. And doing it through that arena, like to, to choose that lane um, the, the lane of, you know, that which I can't explain, I don't understand has 
kind of been been the bellwether, I guess, of, of you know, many, many, many years of be, being a consultant. It's one of these things where, yes, it takes practice. And no, it's not just a lack of stage fright, something I, I was genetically born without. Um, but, you know, it, it is more than that. It is, it, it is figuring out how to hold 300 hands at the same time and, and share something with someone that, that allows you to connect to them. Chris? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, and I don't know that I know that this, the way we do this, there's no uh, arc to this uh, revelation of information. But one thing that I would like to say about uh, speaking publicly is contrary to most people's understanding of rehearsal, you probably can't rehearse too much. A lot of people like to say, oh, well, you know, I like to be a little off the cuff. I don't want to over-rehearse. I don't think you can over-rehearse. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, and so th- there, I will say this, that there is, a, that there is an arc of um, performance where when you first start, you're fumbling, you're, you can't turn your laptop on, you can't share the screen properly, whatever it is. There's a million things that can go wrong. And then you get a little better, and then you, and then you, you get through all your content. You, you're probably going to have some slides. I know Alex hate slides, but everybody's got some slides. And so you're going to like, oh, I'm going to modify this. And then you're like, okay, I think I got it. At the point where you say, okay, I think I got it. You're, you're just starting. And what you want to do is you want to get to the point where uh, you rehearse, you sound rehearsed, you sound smooth. And there's a downside of that hill where you're totally rehearsed. You're totally smooth and you're completely comfortable. And you know exactly where you are, and yet you can make it sound like it's off the cuff. You can make it sound like it's natural. You can sound make it sound like it's fluid, but you're just, you're over this cresting hill of rehearsal, and you're on that down, and the people that are there, they, they don't even seem like they're working. They're just up in front of a group of people talking. And so that's one thing I'd like to leave this conversation with right here at the beginning uh, is you can't over-rehearse. Yeah, and and I what I will say is you have to get to, for me, I have to get to where I know it. So I know, I know it, I know what, what it is because my presentations look very different than most people's presentations. They look a lot more like this show than most people's presentations in the sense that I get up. The first thing I say at almost every event is, Hey, I'm not very good at talking. I'm really good at answering questions. So just start raising your hand in the middle. Like don't wait until the end. If I say something you don't understand, just, just raise your hand. And what happens is, is my presentations have a thread. Like I'm getting, I'm going to get from here to here. But they just go all over the place and they re- respond to the audience, you know, to the to that process of, of what they need to hear or what they need to leave with. Uh, go ahead, Bill. So I spent about 10 years working for and with the National Speakers Association. I was um, a camera operator in the back in my early days, in my early 30s. And I had some of the best public speakers in the world come through and I learned so much from them. So props for the people who went in to study how to speak and spent years doing it. And some of them had 
amazing careers, being excellent, excellent public speakers. One of the things that I learned out of that is that you get through the curve where you're no longer worried about what you're doing and you're worried about what the audience is learning. And when you can make that switch over from this is what I have to do, let me make sure I have my notes, let me make sure my information is correct, which is important to do, no question. But if you get that down so you can switch over going to are they getting the message? And I'll never forget, I had one circumstance where I had, it was one of my biggest audiences when I started um, doing touring lectures for Video Maker Magazine when I was a contributing editor there, about the fourth or fifth one. It was a pretty big conference, and I think I had maybe 200 people in front of me. And I was just popping along, and I thought, I'm getting pretty good at this, and I'm fine. And then the first question, a, a lady raised her hand and said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm brand new to this. What is, and then she gave me a term like HDMI, something that I expected everybody to understand, but she reminded me that she didn't understand it. And so one of the pieces that those professional speakers had given me that I had ignored at my peril was understand your audience and that maybe a little bit of taking the first couple of minutes go, how many people have been in this for a long time? How many people are brand new to it? So you understand the level of the audience and you can tune your presentation to make sure that you don't do what I had done to her, which is presume more than my audience had at that particular audience. And I didn't do a good job of bringing it to their level. And that's that's exactly gets back to why I try to open up for questions all the time because it allows me to error correct. I'm allowed to close the distance from where I'm coming from to where they actually are. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I don't like to public speak in spite of the fact that I was in radio for many years uh, speaking to a large audience, but you don't see them, so there's a big difference there. But I have advised a lot of people on speaking because of the teleprompting uh, business that I've been involved with for the last 30 years or so. So uh, I advise people on how to use a teleprompter properly in, in a, uh, a live speaking engagement, how to look between the two in presidential style prompting. There's a certain talent to do it, so it looks like you're not reading. You're going from one to the other without looking like you're at a tennis match, you know, looking from one prompter to the other. And to to uh, not paraphrase, because uh, if you've got a separate prompter operator that's running your speech for you, and you start, you're very familiar with your speech, if you start paraphrasing or you jump over a, a paragraph, the teleprompter operator is not going to know that, and he's going to be lost, or she is going to be lost. And uh, getting back online is getting back lined up with where the speech is that you're giving is very problematic. So I advise a lot of people about that and public speaking, how to properly use a teleprompter and not uh, uh, screw things up to the point that uh, everything breaks down. And I have horror stories of people that are using, go out with their own printed notes on the lectern, but the teleprompter's there, and they start using the teleprompter, and then they try and go to their printed notes, and they go to the wrong page. Now the teleprompter's lost, and they're lost. They just skipped three pages of the speech, and it's an award ceremony, and now two awards have been skipped over, and it's a live show, and you're trying to figure out how to get back onto it. There's a lot of horror stories associated with uh, you know, doing a prepared live script. This isn't extemporaneous speaking, speaking but uh, doing a prepared live script uh, can be problematic, and looking natural at it is really an art that you have to work on. Yeah, and it's interesting where you, uh, It's I think it comes also where you come from in that area. So I grew up, you know, my father spoke a lot in public. 
And um, he would generally could speak 45 minutes with five lines, five words on a, on a note card. <laughs> like, like it would just be, and he, he had it all kind of in his head and, and, and he would just kind of work through it. And it was di- a little different every time. And so I grew up without any teleprompter or the thought of any teleprompter to the point where I would never use one. Like I would never, you know, um, use a teleprompter to do a, to do a talk because I, I find that it, it, unless you are exceptional at a tell, I'll, I'll do it for records, but I will because I can record over and over again. But unless you are exceptional, and I don't mean good, but exceptional, that you look bad on teleprompter, like every actor in the Oscars, you know, so, so, um, you know, or 80% of them will look bad. They just look square, like they're reading something, you know, and it's just not, and I don't think that, I, and so I think that uh, the teleprompters are, are something that um, I do think that when people are good at teleprompters, man, they just rock it, you know, like, and it's funny, like Leo hates teleprompters, hates teleprompting, but he is exceptional at watching it and, and they can make it look very, very comfortable. But to Courtney's point, you just have to be really good at it. And that does take an enormous amount of, of, of practice. And the, and the broadcasters who are able to do that um, are truly like, people don't realize how much practice and how much work it takes to get, to look like you're just coming up with the words that are showing up on the teleprompter. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I think the next generation is going to be judged much more by how they talk in public than how they write. And and particularly if you want to build a career or anything, you are going to have to master that skill. And you don't start with a room full of 20,000 people. You start with a room full of one, which is yourself. You practice, you start, go to three to five. You've, it, it's really a muscle you have to learn to use. And I would really encourage everybody. I know people are more scared of public speaking than death, but the reality is uh, you can't do much about the death. You can do quite a lot about the public speaking. <laughs> and you do line. that... And you and you do that by practicing. And I, I want to give one other tip before we move on. Um, the best public speakers are those that think about what their audience wants to hear rather than what they want to say. And they adjust what they want to say to what they want to hear. And there's a, a fun story. A friend of mine went to see a, a comic in England years ago called Lenny Henry at a local comedy club. And at the end of his set, Lenny Henry said, by the way, a friend of mine just wants to practice some material, ladies and gentlemen, Robin Williams. And Robin Williams came on. It was the first time he had really toured in the UK. And so he started using material and it bombed. And through the process of the next hour, he worked out less of what he needed to say and more of what people needed to hear. And really, if there's one skill, that would be the one I would master. Because we're talking about Robin Williams. <laughs> I, uh, his ability to just be... Like that's the thing that that, that that you have to get to as a speaker is the, the ability to just dance with what you had. I remember a time we had, we were Lucasfilm and I think I've told this story before, but Robin Williams came in, he were, we were waiting for the camera op and a light or, a light or something like that. And he just started talking. I, to this day, I can't remember what he said. I just know that it took me three days to recover. Like it, my, my, my stomach was so sore all the way up into my ribs from laughing. Like we were, I'd, I'd never laughed so hard. And I still don't know what he said. Like it wasn't like he was, he didn't have a skit. He was just making things up. And I think that when you get to a point where you can just make things up and, 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 get, and continue to, to kind of dance with, again, what, what's there, um, I think it makes it a lot easier to, to get there. But to what Nigel said, it, it's practice, 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 practice. You know, I think that even all of us, you know, that, that's one of the reasons that I, that I value being on the panel here is the, the ability to practice all the time. And to, you know, it, for most of us who did radio, you know, first 200 shows were like, okay. <laughs> 
I would, I'm just really glad we didn't have to record those uh, those radio shows. I recorded them, but conveniently lost most of those tapes. Uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. So I'm going to take a, well, there's a few things that I've learned from uh, going up on stage and doing a lot of presentations. Uh, and of course, local presentations, as Nigel said, you can get on a Toastmasters. There's tons of clubs that you can get into that you can speak at and uh, and really build up a speech. And you could actually take whatever you're talking about and actually use it in different situations to build up that one thing, just like a just like a musician would build up a song and keep playing that song again and again, or or even uh, shows, uh, you know, plays and, and things like that. They don't they don't change up the play if they go to a different town it's the same maybe a word or two but that's it's pretty much the same on there i like to do structured structured storylines for my presentations which means that um and a, a perfect example is if you ever watch last week tonight with john oliver he does this for this main segment he'll start by talking about something else unrelated to the main segment and then it will then morph into the main segment but it will never be a title at the beginning it's like hey come here's my session i'm here and uh here's my email address i always start my my uh my presentations with something like a, a small little story. And then that takes me to the title of the uh, subject that we're talking about and then takes into the meat of there. Uh, another th- another one that I would uh, direct people to is a movie called Punchline. Comedians, certain comedians, we talked about Robin Williams, certain comedians have that. But Punchline, was this was my favorite bit. And that's towards the end when Tom Hanks talks about being a stylist because he structures the whole presentation around being a stylist, gets away from that whole idea of being a stylist, and then comes back to deliver the final punch of his punchline of being a stylist. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, setup for this, for the whole conversation there. Um, Being on stage is one of those things that, you know, is everybody's the, the, the level of, of nervousness comes up. Your pacing changes, the way you speak changes, the, the uh, movement around stage changes. And it's very important that you've got to, that these are things that you do have to work on in other ways. Like, for instance, I've always told people to get a metronome. And when you're speaking, have that metronome clicking back and forth at a certain pace and try and follow that pace when you're talking, so you don't start to rush everything out and, every, and all of a sudden anybody's thought, uh, nobody's understanding anything. Being able to pick out somebody in the audience, even if it's just like you see somebody laugh and you go, yeah, you got that, didn't you? Yeah, perfect. Uh, to bring the audience in and to give them little breaks. So if you've got an hour long presentation, having like one minute of just brain dumps so they can kind of catch up to what you're saying is a very important thing because they, you know, then they'll feel like they're still on track instead of starting to look at their phones or leave for another event or anything like that. One other thing I'll suggest is that the one group that really does get it, uh, many groups get it, but one group that really does get it is professional wrestlers. Watch uh, uh, by a man by the name of Paul Heyman uh, his early stuff, and he can talk off the cuff in his early stuff. Just amazing stuff right there. But just go for those types of, you know, more than just TED Talks. Find the little things and then find that one person that can inspire you to use their style to create your style. Yeah, the the 
a couple things. One is, is that I, uh, at conferences, I do do one mechanical thing says I'm Alex Lindsay and this is the conference that you're, this is the room you're in. And the reason is I'm part of 22 rooms and you may be in the wrong room. So I, I tell you at the very beginning, this is what, this is what we're talking about here. And it's not a, it's not the beginning of my talk. It's, it's a functional, I've had many people sit in the wrong room and suddenly realize about a third into the room of the show that they sat down in the wrong, the wrong room. And so, and I've done it. So I, I, at the very beginning will always tell you, this is the, you're in room, whatever, this is what we're covering. Um, the other thing is, is that, uh, one thing that I pay a lot of attention to is eye blinks. So, um, when I'm up there, I look at people's eyes and if I, if I see what I call slow blinking, it means that I'm putting too much information out at one time and I will tell a joke. And so if, if, if I say things that look like they're non sequitur during the thing, or I tell a little story or I do a little thing that sometimes just, you know, that, that is some tangential, it seems like I'm just ADD and I just thought of something, but it has nothing to do with that. I have decided that I, that people are falling asleep and they're, and it's because it's two things. One is I'm droning on or two is that I am giving them too much information at one time and they'll, they'll start to, that saturation will start to hit. So the, a lot of it, and that's what, one of the big powers of doing Q&A throughout the entire thing is that you get to do this dance with with the audience and it keeps that that um, that movement going and it keeps them thinking. So by answering questions throughout the event, the other thing that you do is you're keeping people a lot, a lot longer in active listening as opposed to passive listening um, because they're, they're able to kind of, they're, they're thinking about the question that they might ask next and they understand that it's actually might be asked um, or might be part of that process. And so, so you know, engaging in that, the, the mistake that, I mean, the huge problem structurally with almost all conferences is the idea that we're going to talk for 45 minutes and open the questions for the last 10 minutes or talk for 30 minutes and open the question for the last 20 um, I try to get through the content. I try to get into questions within the first 10 minutes um, and, and, and start to dig into those. I still have a thread of places that I need to go, um, and I'm still conscious of that thread. Um, the other thing is, is that I use presentations only as illustrations. Never putting You should fight against every word that you may put on your presentation. <laughs> do this for the children. That's all I got to say is do it for the children. Uh, do it for all of us is do not put words on your presentations. Sometimes you need to put them on there to tell, the, to, to identify something. The words come out of your mouth. The pictures that, that illustrate the words go on the presentation. <laughs> do not put the words that you're saying under no, under any circumstances. You should never, ever, ever, but like ever, never put the words that you're saying on the slide. It creates cognitive load. This is why people are falling asleep when they talk about death by PowerPoint. It's because when you're giving the information twice, you're adding to the cognitive load on the. Now, if, if you think that the things need to be written out so people can walk away with a deck, go to pages or word and write a paper, you know, that they can read later or whatever, or build a separate version of this. It has all this, all the words, but when you're presenting, don't do that to your audience. It, it actually makes it very hard for them to, to hear, you know, the illustrations are what you want. Now let's back up just a, a quick second. We'll go to the last two people. Then we'll go to questions here. How do you get into this? The way to get into it is to do it. So whether you're producing videos on YouTube, writing articles for other people, showing up on shows like this, you got to you got to show that you're that you're proven. You got to prove yourself somewhere. Uh, you can go to user groups. Think about things that you could talk about. So you know, find your local user groups and say, "I can talk about this thing. I've got this thing that I can do." Um, keep it small. <laughs> keep it keep it simple at first. But but the but but really try to figure it out. And I and I will say that part of the use and part of why the panel was 
you know, developed this way is to let people figure out how to practice doing these things, you know, whether it's on Saturdays or doing little labs or doing other things to get good at it. A really hard thing to do that you should do as you get started is to film yourself. Have somebody, one of your friends or somebody else sit there with a camera and film it and be willing to watch it. And it, it'll be like listening to your own voice the first time. It'll, you'll feel horrible watching it. Um, I still feel horrible if I watch my own videos. Um, and, and I, but the, the thing is, is that you have to see all your idiosyncrasies and all the things that you're doing over and over again, the weird thing that you do with your hand, how many times you say, uh, how many times you do this, how many times, and, and, and it's brutal. It is a brutal thing to, to, to do, but it's really, really important if you want, actually want to get good at this. Some of the basic things of getting into this is that, um, Look for, look for the, pre, you know, they're looking for speakers all the time. So if you think you are an expert at something, make sure you're an expert. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, you, you want to be, know something that you're going to talk about well um, and figure out how to talk about that, get a little practice. And then what you want to do is there's always call for speakers. And a lot of these conferences are remarkably open to people s saying I can be a speaker <laughs> because there's this machine that they have of trying to fill speakers all the time. They're always trying to fill these, fill these speaker positions. And, and so you want to, um, you know, if you say, hey, I'm available and I can talk about this subject, especially if you look at what they have, a lot of times you'll get a chance. The way to capitalize on that chance is number one is to be responsive. So um, when they send you emails, send them right back. Um, when they ask you, you know, the, thing, the things that they're going to ask you for is you're, you're going to need a headshot. That headshot should be a minimum of 1600 by 1600. You're going to need a short paragraph, short, short paragraph, like six lines that is your demo your bio. It doesn't matter all the things you did in the world. All that matters is six lines that basically give people a description about what you do. Um, and then, and then you, uh, you know, make sure to get that back to them, make sure to respond to them at the beginning. Don't worry about how much you're getting paid or whether the travel's being done, whatever they tell you you're going to do, just to say, okay, that sounds great. Like start going back and forth and they'll, they'll, if you're new and you start going back and forth with them, they'll sort you out really quickly. Like they'll just go, Hey, sorry, we didn't have, we had a little timing problem. They'll never tell you, no one will ever tell you they're getting rid of you because you're being difficult. They'll just tell you that there was a scheduling issue or we really, you know, we would love to have you come back next time. And then they get unresponsive. So, so the, um, so you just want to get into that, into that process and be easy for them. And then they start if, and then the, the key is to do all the things we just talked about, do a great job, get high ratings, get those things. And then getting high ratings, they'll come back to you all the time <laughs> because you are now, and if you are easy to work with, if you filled out things quickly, if you did everything they asked you to do, and if you did get good ratings, um, and, um, you will be asked back, you know, like, you know, and, and then you're, you're, you start to become kind of part of the pipeline. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, statistically, here's some useful information for you. 70% of the effectiveness, effectiveness of your presentation is what you look like. 23% is what you sound like and 7% is what you say. And I'm always amazed by the people who focus on the 7% and miss the 93%. So think about what you look like. Think about how you're coming across. Do you walk on confidently? Do you, are you ready? Then think about how you sound, whether you change your voice, whether you drone on. Alex talked about that. You've got to work the three, the seven percent, but don't miss the ninety-three. I think almost everybody, to Nigel's point, they think enormously about the seven percent. Like, and and they they build these really complex decks, and they build things with tons and tons of content in them, and it just isn't the most important piece of the puzzle. And other things that, by the way, just 
weird, odd things is remember that this is all a um, life in in most cases is all a confidence game and it's whether people have confidence in you or not. So when you tell, when you are, um, when you tell people that you're definitely coming, when you confirm and when you're responsive to their emails, when you say, Hey, I made it to Vegas, you know, like when you land, just tell them I made it to Vegas, looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. Those are all like little notes that, te- that, that, that make it easier for the conference organizer to go, Oh, you know, that's one less thing they have to worry about. Um, when they tell you to show up at 1045, be there at 1045. In fact, be there just a little bit earlier than that, watching in the background for the whole thing to close up so that you can walk up there and do it. Because you're, when you wait until five minutes before you're late, um, it, it puts stress on them. They're now worried that nothing, no one's going to show up for this thing. And you're now creating stress for them, which means they're, they're always going to want to eliminate stress. And again, if you're a low stress, if you come always ready, always ready to go, you put on a good show, everything's connected. The other thing, <laughs> these are all the little things. These are the weird little things. Keep connectors, lots of connectors. Like you, you need to be able to get out to the projector in like a whole bunch of different ways. I have a, I have a full on decimator, uh, you know, MDHX or HXMD or MDHX or whatever in my bag. You know, I can get out to anything I need to get out to <laughs> because I just don't trust the, because you have to know that the stuff that's going to be in the room is going to be horrible. I can't say that word. Anyway, it's going to be bad. Now go ahead, Bill. So much good information here. I mean, this is the reality of showing up at a conference. I had one where I had to do 10 lectures over the course of two days. And then they threw 11th one in there that I know nothing about. And it was a crazy thing because they didn't tell me about it until an hour before somebody else hadn't showed up. That was probably the sweatiest lecture I've ever gone through. But I wanted to mention something. You know, we talk about making it simpler and simpler and getting junk off your slides. And I'm a 100, no, I'm a 200% supporter of that. Uh, It's incredibly important to get rid of all the cruft out of your slides. I am noticing, though, particularly in the Apple presentations, they're now doing what I call DTSs, which is dense technology slides. They will break that rule of as little as possible, and they will put up a very complex slide, usually if they're talking about a a chip or something. And they will have 25 or 30 different little call-outs about what the chip does. They'll leave it up for a long time. And I think those are strategic. And I think part of the reason they're doing that is because they know their audience is so diverse that individual audience members will connect to a little piece of information that they scan over and see and think, ah, that'll solve my problem if I go to this piece of technology. It is done very carefully. It is not a succession of these that will blow people away. But at the right moment, there are ways to get your needs met in terms of a more yeah, complex it's, thing. But it's just very carefully. But killer, yeah. it's four to five slides in an hour and a half. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like it's like it's like these are all the things that we did, you know. And it's like look at us, and and these are all the things that we did. And I will say that. If you look at Apple presentations, um, those are the, that's the gold standard. Like, and, and I'm not just talking about the Apple presentation. I'm talking about the the WWDC. When I spoke, I spoke at WWDC in 2007. And there was, um, it was about QuickTime, how to compress quick, how to compress video for QuickTime. I had written part of an article, uh, part of a book for that. And, and I, um, uh, I got up there and I, well, it took six weeks of meeting with Apple to like show them where I was going, show them what I was doing, show them my slides. They'd pick at things. Why do we have this? And do we need this? And okay, that sounds great. And then I got to, I got to, um, I got to the, to the session. Uh, this time it was in Moscone and I, they have a company called Duarte. Duarte is the kind of the gold standard for doing slide decks and stuff like that and presentations. 
and I showed it, I showed that I had worked really hard on this, probably more than I'd ever worked on a presentation. And the guy there said, uh, this is amazing. Like, this is really the best, one of the best presentations we've ever seen built that's come to us. Um, really, really great work. And I was like, well, you know, I, I, I do this a lot. And, and they said, is it okay if we make a couple of tweaks? And I said, sure. And they just tore my whole, my whole deck apart. <laughs> like it was like, <laughs> it just got atomized. Then it came back and it was the same deck, but it was like, but, and, and I learned more about presentations in that moment than I, you know, sitting there, I just sat there watching them. They said, you can go somewhere. I was like, no, no, I'd like to watch. And I just watched them just rebuild all these slides. So that they prog- And one of the big things that I learned is progressive delivery. So um, the thing is, is that I had a lot of slides that would come up all at one time and they had everything set up so that everything's a click, everything, you know, and, and they were like, never show information that you're not talking about. So never, you know, like, so don't show the information until you are talking about it. And never, you know, so the big mistake people make a lot of times is they throw slides up with all the data that they want to show. I've learned to very carefully, I show you just the thing I want to show you and then I and then I bring it in and just the next thing I want to show you and everything appears as I'm talking. Never, it never, I never show you anything. The other thing to remember is demos are great. People love demos. You know, keep them short. Don't, don't get caught in the weeds and definitely rehearse them a lot. But people love to have demos in there, um, you know, and, and this isn't just something for conferences. You know, companies, they'll say this in multiple companies, demos are demos and decks. That's how you move the world. <laughs> you move the world with demos and decks. In most of the Fortune 500, definitely in FANG, you, you have a deck and you have a demo of how it works or something that you've already built. And that is something that is, and I, I do agree with what was said earlier, which is that this is far more important. Being able to present is far more important than being able to write prose at this point. Um, being able to show your product, go, do a demo, show a deck, explain, you know, uh, you know, and I know that Amazon doesn't agree. They have to write these crazy papers and they all sit and read the paper before it. That is total insanity. Um, but but the but providing people a paper or or prose or something like that sometimes does make sense for some companies. But it's the idea that needs to get moved forward and visually making sure it's clear for people how that's going to work makes a huge difference. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, what Alex is saying about progressive delivery or just, is that what you said, called it? Progressive yeah. delivery? Progressive yeah. disclosure? It, it's super, well, that's a software thing. Uh, that's a super important. And here's here's what I find all the time. People uh, push back against that. They're like, oh, no, that's okay. We, we, we don't need to do all that. And the reason they do about like say making something into a build is it's hard. Yeah, exactly. The reason they do that is they say it's hard and uh, that should not play into if, if you care about doing the very best, don't be afraid of hard. You know, you just, you got to do it. And yes, you're going to have sick, uh, John, uh, Mr. Preto here, he was working on his AI thing and I, and he, he had this, he had this one slide, John, can I share about this? He had this one slide and it was, it was talking about mid-journey. He's like, look at all the beautiful stuff that mid-journey does. And he had a slide with like 10 or 12 images on it. I said, John, that's, it's awful. <laughs> Don't do that. And, and I said, give me the slide. And I tore it apart and I built a single click, boom, dissolve, dissolve. And it showed the images full screen. And it was like so much better. It was because you got to actually experience these images full screen and not see that. Well, you know, I, it, it'll be fine. I've done it. It's it's fine. No, it's not fine. It's bad, and let's fix it. And it was harder, but it was worth it. And by the way, uh, Bill, here's that here's that thing uh, that you were talking about. Let me hit play over here. Sorry. Uh, boom, boom, boom. 
Apple's been doing this at the end of their presentations about different things. So here's the deal. This is really beautiful about the whole titanium phone thing. And then it's going to push back and there's all your data. And that's uh, your sort quilt, of... product quilt, yeah. Yeah, product quilt. Is that what you call it? That's cute. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a another way of... It's sort of a summary at the end. Look at all the cool stuff it does here. And what they're taking advantage of there is that you will you will see the things that are important to you subconsciously and your eye will be call, called to them. So when they show them there, you'll only see the things that, that your, your your brain is process, has processed that entire frame in an instant. And it's looking at the things that it, it thinks that are important. And that's what that's how the product quilts work. And, and they, they but they work only if you do them over and over and over again, you'll get overwhelmed really fast. And so uh, it is really important. Um, the. The other thing to remember is if you do have a following or if you are somewhere, remember that before and after the event to promote the event that you were on. So tweet it out, put it on LinkedIn, do those things again for the for the the people who are doing the event. It's important to them you know, to, to do that. Um, that process is um, for them to, to be part of that. And so but these are all things again. It And I just we're talking about it today because. Many people are trying to figure out how to get to the next thing and how to how to do what they need to do. This is a really powerful tool. And the hard part is, is it's the most powerful when you're the busiest. So the thing to remember is, is that is that when you are the busiest, when you're doing things and learning things and doing all those things is when you should be out speaking. It's hard. And you say, oh, I don't have time for that anymore. I don't I don't have I'm busy. I'm plenty busy. The problem is, is that this yields fruit when you're not busy, <laughs> you know, like, so when you, and especially when you're not busy, right after you've been busy is the time to, to build videos, do demos, post things on LinkedIn, do other things like that. So when you're in between things that are going on, take advantage of the fact you learned a bunch of things, or you did a bunch of things. Try not to say, look at me, try just to say, this is what I did. Like if I post things into social, whatever. I, I don't do it that much, but I, if I post something of something I worked on, usually what I worked on is pretty old. I don't, unless it's something in here, cause I can post on it. But if I'm doing it for a client, it's usually 10 years old when I post it. Cause I don't want to have anybody talk about the fact that I was talking about something. I mean, I feel like it's old news at that point, but I'll talk about what worked and didn't work about something or what the challenge was and how we met it. In those kinds of things, I don't talk about, I was very, you know, it was really great that somebody worked with me. I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like those posts. <laughs> I, I, I step over them really fast in, in, in LinkedIn. Um, and, but what I do, what I am interested in is when someone posts, like, this is a challenge that we had, and this is what we solved in this program. And that's something that's really interesting. And it, and the more you get yourself out of the way, the more interesting it is. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. Alex knocked loose something in my brain from years ago. I, I was just at... In the in one of these insane times where you know I'm I'm seeing three clients a day, which if you're doing that in person is an insane workload, and was asked just kind of extemporaneously to, to talk to I think it was an association of wedding photographers about something like digital asset management or cybersecurity. To be honest, I don't even remember it, and it was you know half hour talk completely. I remember it as being extemporaneous, and you know really the odd part about these things is that you, you, you end up getting 
a, a cluster of people afterwards. You know, it's, it's the questions that happened afterwards that are that are kind of the great stuff. And a woman came up and and said, "I've just started my business. I'm, you know, I am a single photographer. Thank you so much because I didn't even know what I didn't know. And you know, you'll be hearing from me. And like, you know, you hear this as a, as as a tech guy a lot. Seven years later, she comes back to me. I kid you not. Seven years later, and was probably my entire book of business for like two weeks. It was a big project because she had truly um, remembered everything that I'd said or, or at least enough to remember my name. And um, so, yeah, when you are busiest, take this stuff seriously. Let's go to the next question. Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area writes in, uh, why do we see many public speakers creating answers not based on real experiences, facts, or real data? Isn't, is it, isn't it okay to not be an expert on everything? No. Go, Nigel. No. Yeah, so this is a question requires context. If you're speaking to a bunch of brain surgeons, I suggest you don't talk about being a brain surgeon unless you happen to be one. But in this context, you could talk about what it might be like to you if you had had brain surgery. So try and keep thinking, remember, think about the audience, think what they want to hear, keep it in context. People make stuff up because they get asked questions and they don't remember the answer. So they approximate to it. Oh, 73% of the world think everything is upside down or something. And they're trying to make a point and they're trying to get a thought across and they think it's okay to, to give a rough statistic. We live in a world of Google and searchability. Be careful. If you want to do that, say, hey, I read a survey that was this study. I don't remember the exact numbers, but this was the point it was trying to make. Focus on the point it's trying to make. Uh, and, and whatever you do, please don't use jokes uh, that you haven't made up, that you've heard somebody else use. I remember there was about a 10-year state uh, place where I heard the same speaker make the same joke as if that, that it was an original joke, and it really was disastrous by the end. Humor is uh, really hard to do. <laughs> and being funny about something that you observe is one thing. Telling a joke is... is uh, it, it works about 5% of the time. But I w what I will say is that I'm very fine. And I, f I think part of it is I feel comfortable that I've done enough of this that if I don't know it, I don't feel like I have to prove anything. So I just say, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. Uh, you know, or I, I don't have a certain, I don't have any certainty here, but here's, and I'll set up, I don't have any certainty, but I think that this might be blah, 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 or this is where I would look for it. But I don't feel like I have to make anything up anymore. <laughs> but I, you know, I think that maybe I did in the early days. Good, Courtney. Yeah, I think it's very tough. If you're brought in as to speak on a specific subject that you're supposed to be an expert on, is to, uh, you know, somebody asks questions that you don't really know the answer to, you're going to probably make up an answer or give your best approximation of an answer, but you got to realize that there's a lot of people out there that can be looking up that answer on their phones at the same time to, to check you out. And the other problem is if you're going to research a subject uh, before, you know, if you're not an expert on it, uh, don't get siloed because there's a lot of information out there. And, you know, if you do searches on something and you get involved with some conspiracy theory website or something that uh, doesn't have a lot of truthful information on it, and then that then the algorithms start serving you up other, uh, other websites with the same misinformation on it, uh, it's very difficult to know the truth these days uh, or accurate information a lot of times. And with ChatGBT making up hallucinating uh, facts and events on its own, uh, you can't depend on that anymore to do factual research. 
So do careful research across a broad platform before you try and speak on a subject. And if you are uh, not quite as knowledgeable in an area, uh, try and be on a panel like this where there are knowledgeable people that can give their correct opinions and you can refer to them uh, for an answer instead of trying to make one up yourself. If you're alone on the DS there and trying to be an expert, you can get in trouble. Next question. Mike Beardmore in Bedford, UK writes in, when speaking at events in Wales, UK, headsets for non-Welsh speakers and listeners with live translation is common. How would you modify your technique? Go ahead, Nigel. I used to speak a lot in in the East, um, so in China and Japan, and I found there were two different situations I got stuck in. First of all, it was simultaneous translation, which is what this sounds like, or it was line-by-line translation. If you're in simultaneous translation, just slow your pace down. Be careful of using words. We should be care- always be careful of using words that are, are jargon or stuff, but be doubly careful that somebody else, particularly if you haven't spent time with them, has to translate that word. So keep it simple, move more slowly, and I'll think about the other person on the other end and their ability to keep up with you. <coughs> I much preferred line-by-line translation, <coughs> where I would say a couple of lines, and then the person would translate it. And I liked that more, because then I could think about what I was going to say next and actually probably improve the presentation. Go ahead, Bill. And for Mike, if you've ever been around, uh, particularly an older native Welsh speaker, it is indecipherable. There may be a part of English underneath it, but it is an incredibly thick, heavy accent. So I I double down on what Nigel said. If I was in that circumstance, realizing that 90% of the audience is going to get 5% of the actual speaking, you really do have to treat it like it's all foreign language and serve your audience. If you can make it simpler and easier for them to understand, that's your main goal here. I, uh, a lot of times when I'm in a foreign country, I usually assume that everyone around me has a, you know, understands fifth grade English from someone who's never watched any social media. So I speak in very concrete terms with very concrete words with nouns and verbs that are, you know, in, in simple sentence structure. And I don't do that because I'm, it's not looking down on anybody. Um, I know that a lot of them are very good at it. It's just that their English is already better than my Swahili or my French or my, you know, so I already feel like they're doing much better than I am. I just want to make it easy to make. And what I'm trying to ensure is what I'm saying is understood. Um, and so I will say, I, I will slow down and I will say things in very concrete terms um, in a way that that I feel and I knew it naturally now, uh, and I just don't use a lot of jargon or big words. Um, and it's, again, not because I don't think they can handle that. It's because I just don't know what they know, what part of the language they know. And I also want to make sure that if someone's translating it, they have the highest probability of being accurate. And so that's the, you know, that definitely is a shift. I personally believe that uh, no one, unless they are exceptional, like born into it, should try to um, present in a second language. <laughs> I, know, I know that sounds crazy. I think that, you know, companies that do big presentations and everything else with lots of speakers with second, la- you know, as a second language makes it really hard to listen to. And I'd much rather have captions or a translator than have them try to speak a language that, that is not their native language or that they are not really smooth at. Yeah, go, go, Courtney. Yet another rule is don't use colloquialisms because uh, they don't translate well into other languages. They may be completely understandable if you say, you know, that's a horse of a different color, any type of colloquialism that is 
that is common. So stay away from that because it's tough for translators to know that it's a quote colloquialism and then be able to translate it into something meaningful, meaningful in the other language. Oh, Jason. That reminds me that the, the purpose in general of speaking publicly is to get your audience closer to you, not to push them away. And that sounds obvious. And uh, what what this came from with Alex was do not use heady, lofty vocabulary. Do not use, oh, I'm going to be stupid if I don't use big words in front of these smart people. You're actually putting up a wall that, that makes you harder to connect to. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't be insecure like that. Just Good. go out and be yourself. Good, Nigel. I also have a message here for the Americans in the audience. Never, ever, ever. When you are outside the U.S., use American sporting analogies. The chances are nobody will know what you're talking about. (laughs) Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, When booking presenters, do some of them have riders similar to musical artists? How have have you dealt with their outlandish rider requests? Nigel. It, It really all depends on the event and what you're trying to do with that speaker. I had a speaker once. I was relaunching a brand and I needed another brand alongside it. And the CEO of that other brand, who was a very, very famous tech person, said they would do the hours presentation if I sent a jet to pick them up and then sent the jet to take them home. It was a big enough event that I paid that amount because I wanted that person on our stage with our brand. So the answer is, what are you trying to achieve? What what do you want out of this? And if it's worth it, you'll do it. $40,000. It's the last time I paid for a, a jet for somebody to, to show up at an event. $40,000 round trip. Um, the... Um, uh, the uh, since we're talking about getting started, the number one thing is not have a rider when you get started. The person, the people that we're talking about do this all the time. You're probably paying them 10, 20, 30,000, $100,000 to show up um, or more. The uh, They have riders. You don't have riders. <laughs> like, so, so people, like what you want to ask for is what do you have and try to be as flexible as you can as you get started on, on, this, on this little path and not be um, difficult. Next question. Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas writes in, do you describe your slides or at least mention what you are showing to the audience? Good, Bill. I try, if I, if I think I might have visually impaired people uh, in the audience, I try to do that a little more. It is a delicate balance, though, because, again, all of a sudden, for the sighted part of your audience, you're reading your slides, which is probably the number one sin. I mean, we've all been in presentations where a really bad presenter throws up a bullet list and then just simply reads them in order. Uh that is inclusive for someone who can't see the slide. So if you're in a show like ours where you have a radio audience and a visual audience, you have to be careful about that. But I try not to, and I do think that the serial disclosure thing that Alex talked about and that other panelists have talked about, where you're just bringing up, you know, Chris mentioned it, just bringing up what's important now, that'll help avoid that situation where you've got a whole, you know, you got five bullet list items and you're trying to say, should I read them through or just ignore them? Next question. Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area writes, in certain speakers get really flustered by questions mid-presentation. Can those folks practice being, can practice being derailed to build their own adaptive chops? Nigel? 
Yeah, you, you can practice anything about public speaking. Put a bunch of friends in the room, put your family in and play the game and ask them to ask the most stupid questions. And, and so uh, you get it. Uh, two, two quick techniques uh, you might find useful here is remember why you're there. Remember the point you're trying to communicate and learn to get back to that point get back focused. And the second thing is um, never, ever say that's a good question. Um, the best uh, example of tactic I ever saw, which I would not suggest you use, I had a friend who would, he got asked a really difficult question, took his glasses off and said, I'm sorry, I can't hear you clearly without my glasses on. And then he moved on. Corny. <laughs> yeah, if you've got a prepared speech that you're giving on a specific topic, don't allow questions in the middle of it. Because that can derail your speech. Uh, the questioner may ask a question that you're about to cover four paragraphs down in the speech. And so now you're going to have to double cover it and skip over that part of the speech. Or no, you know, you've only partially covered it. Save the questions for the end or have nothing but questions and speak and ditch the prepared speech and just work off the questions and try and navigate through the questions and bend them to the area that you want to cover. But uh, having questions in the middle just derails your speech and can uh, you know make it very difficult to recover into a prepared speech if you're covering an area that you're going to cover later in the speech. You know? uh, and I... I just build my shows around the idea that I'm, I have things that I want to talk about and I have, uh, I'm open up to questions almost immediately and it's just a matter of doing it. Um, I don't say that I've always been a success at doing that. Um, I will say that that's just the way I operate and I've been doing that for 30 years and it does take a lot of practice and you have to know your subject matter really well to be able to do that. But it is the most effective way to talk <laughs> to your audience is to is to interact with them um, as far as uh, what they'll actually remember. As far as prepared speeches, um, usually what I do is if I want people to see something or I want to say something before we start having questions, I make a video and I send it to them early. Let them watch it. It makes the Q&A a lot better. Uh, next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois writes in, I find Q&A at the end of presentations typically boring and only applicable to a few i rather see a speaker end after uh, initial presentation and applause. Q&A after? The fundamental problem with Q&A right now is open mics. That's why it, this is originally why Mukana was created, was to get rid of open mics in rooms. Like that was the, that's the DNA, the early DNA of Mukana was the first time we used the question, what we called the question engine at the time, was because we wanted to stop having people use the mics. The, what makes the Q&A so bad is people actually talking or going around the table 40 times. And a lot of people aren't conscious. I've done it. Um, a lot of people aren't conscious to how much time they're taking to ask the question. And, um, and so getting to some way that they can deliver it via text is really powerful because it allows you to move through those questions and allows you to have make more intelligent choices. And it gets a lot better really quickly. Next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas writes in, what differentiates the Tony Robbins and Matthew McConaughey's who draw mega audiences from the rest of us in terms of speaking style and content? Go ahead, Courtney. Charisma, one word answer. <laughs> and I will argue interacting with the audience. Go ahead, Bill. Those are both good answers. I will say that most of them uh, had something to bring to the table before they became professional speakers at this level or highly sought after speakers. Uh, in Matthew's case, he's a movie star. In Tony Robbins's case, he started with like firewalking and, and things that were, he found a really interesting way to kind of give you a visual thing that was extraordinary, but they didn't stop there. They, they truly 
worked on building an audience through presentation. They're both extraordinarily charismatic. I, I agree with that 100%. And, but they worked it and leveraged it through years and years and years and years of refinement. And I don't know as much about Matthew McConaughey. T- Tony Robbins, uh, I think I, uh, he, uh, I think his background, whether he talks about it very much, was starting in Est. And Est is a very Q&A audience interactive version of how to how to do that kind of thing. And so, of course, he came out of that that um, and improved on it and definitely made it better. But I think that that was, um, I think that the, the DNA of, of how that, how he does what he does comes from a, from the earlier stuff that had been done in the 70s and 80s. All right. It's a good conversation. <laughs> we, you know, it's funny, the questions start to pick up at the very end. And then, then we're like, you know, I, if you're wondering as a producer and you're watching us kind of stretch out and talk about things, uh, it definitely is definitely connected to the number of questions that we have. So if we, we see three or four questions, we'll talk for quite a long time. Uh, but think about those things and come up with come up with questions a little earlier. It's a great job. These are great questions. And it really drove the conversation. But no, as, as the host, I'll sit there and keep on chatting with the, with the panel um, as I'm waiting for questions to kind of pick up so that um so that we you know try to cover what we can cover there so um asking questions early definitely pushes us towards the questions faster um but thank you thank you thank you to the producers um for all the great questions there thank you to the panelists can't do this without you it's good discussion about about speaking and uh thanks to the incredible team on the back end um, that makes all of this happen um the uh the you know the development of it the execution the planning the management all that's done by I don't even know how many people are involved in the program right now, but it's probably north of 50 people that are working on any given week, you know, to make this actually happen. So it's just really an amazing thing that we all do to make shows that we all get to experience together. So it's, it's quite, a, quite a thing. So thank you so much for your contribution. Uh, we traveled 46,000 miles today in the Tlaloc Traversal at 75,000 kilometers, and that is 369 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. I'm not speaking at FM. I'm not speaking at the Final Cut Use Group, Final Cut Summit. I did. No. I, think I, I think I did during the thing, during uh, COVID. I think that I'm so. Di- Here's the worst part: is I've gotten to the point I'm so difficult because I never want to show up. I'm always let me do it from my house. Like just give me a give me a Zoom connection and I'll come in and present because I'm like. I've got this really nice studio that I can do all these cool things. And when I get down there, I get this little Extron box that says you can connect your one computer to it. And you're just like, hmm. I'll, take your tra- I'll take your travel vouchers, though, for sure. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what Nick does. I think he's in, in charge of it this time as opposed to our old I, friend. Yeah. I'm not speaking there either, by the way. In case. Well, I'm, not go- I'm definitely not going now. We should, we should figure out a way to... Uh, so is... is yeah, we should talk about that. I'm very curious how they're going to handle that. Nick Cruz is a good good guy. He'll be yeah. he'll he'll put some spins on it that Jeff didn't. But you know, yeah, it's going to be interesting. First time back. Cool. Best example of zero charisma speaker is Ben Stein in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Bueller, the economic clear eyes is Funny better. thing is, he's actually an economist. Like that was the funny part is and that he made up all that. Incredibly text. smart. Yeah, he's actually really fun to watch. I know. It's the most acting. boring delivery ever. <laughs> That's well, I think that was the acting 